0: Hello, and welcome to the Beyond Stewardship podcast. My name is David Warners.
1: And I'm Matt Hewn. We're the co-editors of Beyond Stewardship, New Approaches to Creation Care. Beyond Stewardship is available from Calvin Press at calvin.edu press and major online retailers. The Beyond Stewardship podcast is a series of interviews between the editors and the chapter authors of Beyond Stewardship.
2: Our speakers today who will tell you about the book and the project. Um, so, uh, Dr. Matt Hewn is a professor of engineering here at Calvin College. He has a bachelor's degree in engineering, uh, master's and PhD in mechanical engineering from University of Illinois. He has worked at Jet Propulsion Lab and experiments related to planetary exploration with balloon systems, aerospace R&D company. And uh, he has done a lot of work here, including some sabbatical work Uh, but has really taken a leadership here at Calvin College on issues of sustainability. Um, I also want to introduce Dr. Dave Warners, um, another editor of this book, um, professor of biology here at Calvin College. He has a bachelor's degree in biology. From here, a PhD in botany, ecology, and evolutionary biology program from the University of Michigan. Um, And he works in the, particularly the area of restoration ecology. Uh, Plant Systematics and Evolution, uh, Sustainability Studies, and Faith-Based Creation Care. Um, He's quite well known, in particular, for his current research on engaging the local community to work together to restore the health and beauty of the Plaster Creek Watershed. But, before we turn it over to them, uh, this book owes a lot to the Calvin Center for Christian Scholarship. So I want to start by turning it over to Professor Student Uh, professor Susan Phelps, professor of English here at Calvin College. Um, She has a PhD from the Catholic University of America um, and has uh, worked um, uh, doing a number of uh, leadership in grant-based programs, including the uh, Lilly Graduate Fellowship Program. But she is particularly well-known here at Calvin College and uh, all... quite much more broadly as a director of the Calvin Center for Christian Scholarship. So she will tell us more about that and how this book fits into uh, the broader goals of Calvin Center for Christian Scholarship. So please welcome Professor Susan Bell.
3: Thank you. Thank you, this is a wonderful crowd. Um, I knew that Calvin University uh, <laughs> folks love to read, and you're proving it to us. So thank you so much for being here. Eleven years ago, as a newly appointed director of the Calvin Center for Christian Scholarship, I stood right here in this room to announce a book launch, the book launch of this book, The Bibles, Rocks, and Time, Geological Evidence for the Age of the Earth, written by Davis Young and Ralph Sturley published by IVP Academic in 2008 and supported by a major grant from CCCS, Kelvin Center for Christian Scholarship. It was the first book published under my watch, and I was very proud of it and proud of the authors. But it was not the first book to come out of the science division and sponsored by CCCS. Nearly 40 years ago, the very first book sponsored by CCCS was this one, Earthkeeping, Christian Stewardship of Natural Resources. And then 11 years, you can hear a certain mathematical pattern going on here. 11 years later, CCCS also helped to sponsor a revision of that book, Earthkeeping in the 90s, Stewardship of Creation. And now 28 years later, CCCS and the Calvin Press are very pleased to present Beyond Stewardship, New Approaches to Creation Care. I'm particularly delighted because all of these books represent what Calvin does at its best. Encourage faculty to faithfully pursue their calling as scholar teachers, to investigate and interrogate their disciplines, to write wisely and winsomely about God's world. And the Calvin Center for Christian Scholarship encourages this work across a wide swath of disciplines. The writers and beyond stewardship find their academic homes in English, economics, communication, philosophy, religion, biology, engineering, geography, urban planning, and education. They've also found an academic home at the Calvin Center for Christian Scholarship, and they've made a home among each other. This home is expanded to include the voices and the art of three first year, now second year, Calvin students, whose work is also included in Beyond Stewardship. Dave and Matt have been a joy to work with. They've been exemplary editors and conveners of this project, as well as fine scholars in their own right. I have many favorite lines in this book. But I'm going to leave you with my favorite chapter title, written by Dave, and it is called Walking Through a World of Gifts. And I'm going to read my favorite closing paragraph also from this chapter. Recognizing that daily we are walking through a world of gifts will cause us to move carefully to live mindfully, and to consider what we can do in response. Viewing the creation as filled with gifts informs our answer to the question that was raised in the preface. How shall we live? How shall we faithfully live out our lives in grateful ways that will protect, enhance, and restore God's broken yet beloved world? This is the challenge we face, and it is a challenge that holds great relevance for future generations of people and other creatures who will also be living out their lives in a world of gifts. Those generations should be able to expect that God's good gifts will have been preserved or even enhanced, not depleted by those who have come before them. May the lives we live in God's good creation today protect the praise of hearts and mouths and wings and petals of those generations yet to come. We are dreaming of a time when the land might give thanks for the people. Thank you, David Mack.
0: try to multitask, which is always a dangerous thing. (laughs) Thank you so much, everybody, for coming today. uh, Matt and I are really excited about this book, but our excitement gets amplified when we see other people excited, too, and and other people, so many of you who uh, mean a great deal to us and have been big influencers in our lives, both young and old. Um, So thanks so much for being here. Um, At one of our early meetings with Susan, uh, Matt and I were talking with her about our vision for this book. And um, one of the one of the ideas she came up with early on was that we should have each chapter writer start their chapter with a story that would draw the reader in to what they really want to say. And we thought that was a great idea. And so we 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 did that. All the chapter writers have implemented that in their chapters. And so um At the start of our comments today, I thought it only appropriate that I begin with a story, too. And I'm going to do that. This is not a story that appeared in the book. Uh, Maybe uh, you can think of it as one that was left on the cutting room floor. Or uh, maybe it's an extra if you purchase the DVD or something like that. (laughs) Um, But here's a story to uh, focus our thoughts a little bit as we uh, give an overview of the book. Make sure I can get my glasses. Oh. Here we go. I got it. I'm not an engineer, so it's challenging for me. In the early 1950s, in the early 1950s, a young Ephraim Chacon and his brother Fernando hiked up into a previously uninhabited section of cloud forest in the Talamanca Mountains in southern Costa Rica. They found a relatively level area along the Sabegre River where they homesteaded. Over the next decade, Efrain and Fernando cleared parts of the pristine cloud forest and Efrain, his wife Caridad, and their family started a dairy operation They populated the previously uninhabited valley with 11 children and with way more than 11 cows. The family became quite successful. The children helped in various tasks by milking cows, making cheese, butter, and transporting their products to sell in the large cities of Cartago and San Jose. In the early 1980s, because his children had married, and began having children of their own, Ephraim decided it was time to significantly increase their dairy herd. To accommodate this, more cloud forest needed to be cleared. One day early on in this process, as Ephraim and his oldest son, Marino, were clearing land above their family compound, they paused to rest while working on a particularly large oak tree. In 2001, Ephraim told a class I was leading with Randy Bendrat that while he rested, he looked down on his family compound, then around at the forest that they were planning to clear. And it was then he told our students that he had an epiphany. It occurred to him that if he went through with a dairy expansion plan, his grandchildren would grow up to know a very different valley than he had come to know. He already regretted that the monkeys had left the valley. The brocket deer and their predators, jaguars, were also gone. The beautiful Quetzals were in decline, and the river had become increasingly muddy because of all the cows. He told us that as he rested, he looked into the future, and he didn't like what he saw. He had a sudden change of heart. He told Marino that they were not gonna finish cutting down that oak tree. In fact, they were not gonna cut down any more trees. The family needed to make some changes. Over the next 10 years, the Charcones transitioned from running a dairy farm to growing orchards, to farming fish and running an ecotourism lodge. All the cows were moved out of the valley. The family's new way of living required much less cleared land than was needed to raise cows. So many of those old pastures were abandoned. In 2001, when I first met the family, they had begun planting cloud forest seedlings into these abandoned pastures to try to help them recover. During the sabbatical in 2005, my family and I lived in this valley And I did research on figuring out the best ways to help reforest some of these abandoned pastures. Although the transition to a more sustainable livelihood was challenging and not without risk, their new way of living in the valley has worked out very well. The Chacones now sell fruit and fish throughout Costa Rica. Their ecotourism lodge hosts over 10,000 guests each year and they have documented that the cloud forest animals, including Quetzals, are returning. In 2006, a large portion of the Chacon property was designated as Costa Rica's newest national park, Parque Nacional Los Quetzales. Our family, and I should apologize to my daughter who's here. I didn't tell her I was gonna show her this picture. <laughs> Our family found the story of the Chacoans to be a striking example of how a change in the way one thinks can have a big impact on the way one lives. Ephraim looked into the future, didn't like what that future held for his grandchildren, three of whom are pictured here, and he decided to dramatically change the way he was living. The story also offers a powerful illustration of the objectives of the Beyond Stewardship Project. We humans are degrading the non-human creation we are not headed in a real good direction. Epiphanies are needed. Ephraim paused while working on the huge white oak to reflect upon what he was doing. The Beyond Stewardship project has provided an opportunity for the participants to collectively pause and reflect together upon what we as a species are doing to God's creation. And on the day of this book launch, we authors and editors offer the book to you as an outcome of those reflections. We hope that the fresh thoughts expressed in these pages will find fertile ground in the hearts and lives of those who read them. And perhaps some new ways of thinking will lead us all to new and better ways of living. But you might be wondering, really, another book on creation care? Don't we have a couple really good ones already? And the answer is yes, we do. And we want to be very clear about this. The earthkeeping books that Susan mentioned, also done by a group of reformed scholars, Gene Dykema, Cal DeWitt, Fern Ehlers, Peter DeVos, and edited by Lauren Wilkinson, and their emphasis on approaching creation as Christian environmental stewards, was a significant improvement over the prevailing notion of dominion. Matt and I, and I suspect many people here, have been richly blessed by their efforts and by the efforts of many others who had a strong commitment and lived it out uh, to God's good creation. But 1980 was 39 years ago. And the second updated edition was 28 years ago. And the world has changed dramatically since then. And as times and understandings have advanced, the limitations of a Christian environmental stewardship model have become clearer. So what are those limitations? In our introduction of the book and also in Steve Battle Prediger's chapter, chapter six, these limitations are enumerated and explained. I don't want to go into all the details now, but let me just mention a couple. First of all, with Jesus' parables in the New Testament, a steward is depicted as someone who takes care of something that belongs to someone else when the owner is away. And this kind of thinking really um, is inconsistent with a reformed emphasis on God's immanence in the creation. God is not away. Uh, he is present in the creation, and maybe it has led us to underappreciate how important it is to recognize God's presence in the creation around us. Another limitation is that the word stewardship is used in lots of different ways. When I googled stewardship and image, one of the, one of the uh, options that came up was this. All right. Keep looking, you might find the word creation in there. It's kind of like where's Waldo? wall, though. Right. There it is. Right. But it gets confusing if we're talking about stewardship. What are you talking about? All right. So a lot of the original meaning of stewardship that was articulated in the Earthkeeping books has sort of um, been diluted over time. So instead of trotting out all of these different limitations, I, I did think I would read to you a section from the foreword, where Bill McKibben, who wrote our foreword, uh, does a nice job of summarizing the limitations of this concept. So Bill writes, as the authors of this book point out, stewardship is a limited idea, suggesting at best a dutiful sense of earnest commitment. For some reason, the word always gives me the nagging sense that it's time to again to mow the lawn. (laughs) It is not particularly joyful. It misses the gospel call to love. Oh, and beyond that, it clearly isn't working. But if stewardship, then what? Are there better ways to envision our relationship with creation? The answer is yes. And the different authors in this book have done a really beautiful job of articulating some of those fresh new ideas. And we feel that this book is a really good example of one of the well-known mantras that you hear around Calvin fairly often, which is reformed and noise reforming. The audience... And purpose of this book, our intended audience for Beyond Stewardship is Christians who have a passion for and concerns about God's creation. Its purpose is to equip Christians to live better in the creation by helping us all think more intentionally about the relationship between humans and non-human creation in which we are necessarily and thoroughly embedded. We urge readers to envision with us a future in which all Christians, as well as their churches and denominations, actively work towards a more sustainable world. Some of the themes that emerge in this book now uh, are going to be described to you by Matt. So we're going to switch places at this point. And he did. Oh, you have your own glasses. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I need. I just need the microphone.
3: Uh, <laughs>
1: Test, test, test. Is that working? Okay, good. Thank you. Okay, now that I'm wired for sound, we'll give this a try. I wanna echo David's words and Susan's words to say, what a fantastic uh, crowd here today. Thank you so much for being here. And it is a real pleasure to uh, be able to discuss the work that we've done over the last couple of years and to uh, share that with you today. I wanna make sure you guys are hearing me all well in the back, are we good? All right, thank you. So it's my task and my pleasure to introduce some of the themes of the book to you. And these themes are threads that run through several of the chapters in the book. The first that I wanna talk about is lament and reconciliation. In my chapter, I lead with an allegory set at the Calvin Engineering Open House that occurs in May of each year. I use a hypothetical speech to students and parents to ask how the engineering students would feel if the night before their public presentation, I took my sledgehammer and trashed everything. That leads to a discussion of lament by the prototypes standing in for the creation. The students as the creators and me as the destroyer standing in for humanity. I say we sit between the way the creation is damaged and the way the creation ought to be flourishing. And we don't know what to do. That's always the space in which you lament. Beyond Stewardship is a book for Christians who are distraught by the lament of the maker and compelled by the lament of the creation. It is for those who recognize their role as destroyer and find themselves on a path through lament to forgiveness improved relationships and recommitment to repair the damage they have done in the past and to do less harm in the future. Gail Gunst Hefner leads with a story of surprise at seeing an African-American grandfather and grandson fishing in Plaster Creek, the most contaminated waterway in West Michigan. The story brings us into recognition of environmental racism and talks about what we must do to, to solve it. She says, First, all people must recognize the reality of environmental racism. Next, privileged people must develop empathy for and learn from the people most affected by environmental injustice. Then, privileged people must admit and lament complicity in the formation and perpetuation of environmental injustice. Finally, restorative action must occur. The point from both these chapters is that lament is not the end, but the beginning, rather, of our work. Lament brings us face to face with what is wrong and spurs us to make it right. The next topic is humility. Jamie Skillen, who I think I saw in the back, there he is, includes a story of the US Forest Service. At their founding, they had the best of intentions for sustained yield forestry. But even with the best intentions and the best available science, they couldn't get it right. Fire suppression policies being just one of the problems. Humans have limited knowledge. We are finite. Jamie says, Christians who want to live in ways that promote the integrity, stability, and beauty of creation face these frustrating limits. We buy products from around the world, and these products have positive and negative impacts on God's creation. At the same time, we can never have complete knowledge of these impacts, and therefore, we can never make fully informed decisions. We are, and always will be, finite creatures. Jamie and other authors suggest that humility is an appropriate response to the challenge of human finitude. The next theme I want to discuss is de-objectification. Amina Al-Atas Bradford uses microbes, of all things, to encourage humility, which is a much better posture for creation care than dominion, and maybe even than stewardship. Humility reduces our tendency to objectify the non-human creation, to think of it as something other, something out there. She uses microbes and the human biome to decenter humanity. She says, discoveries of humanity's intimate entanglement with microbial life complicate the theological idea that we are separate from and superior to the rest of creation. How superior to animals can we be if we depend upon them to be ourselves? When we understand that matter matters for redemption, caring for the creation becomes a mutual stewardship wherein we acknowledge that the flesh that supports our biological and spiritual renewal needs us to return the favor. We move beyond mere stewardship to symbiotic stewardship as we embrace our creaturely dependence. The last theme that I want to talk about is kinship. Kyle Mayard-Skop tells the story of Larry Gibson and K. Ford Mountain. Larry opposed mountaintop removal mining in West Virginia and protected his family's homestead for decades. Kyle names the radical connection between humans and the non-human creation observed by Amina. He calls it kinship. Kyle says, Scripture does not ultimately call us to use and manage the creation. Rather, it calls us to be in intimate kinship with it. Matt Haltman and Megan Haltman's work carry the theme forward further. God's human and non-human creatures fundamentally belong together. The strong bond that unites them is more like a loving family relationship than an instrumental relationship between a steward and a resource. The word kinship captures the nature of this bond. Becky Roselius Haney shares the story of Taugu, chief of the Paiute nation, and John Wesley Powell, a renowned geologist who lived among the Ute and the Paiute nations for several years. Powell was a trusted interpreter who learned a great deal from the people he lived with. In an 1879 report, Powell explained that the official approach to development, which was 100 acre sections all over the place, would fail in the parched landscape of the West. His experience led him to advocate for parcels sized by the water available from springs and infrequent streams. But his plan was ignored by the government. As Becky says, humans should understand themselves as active participants within the creation and learn to live in affirming kinship with it. Acknowledging our interdependence with the non-human creation is necessary for the true flourishing of all creation. Now there are plenty more themes. I would love to read something from every single chapter, but I think that gives you a flavor for it. But let me just touch on a few other ones as well. Clarence Joldersma tells the story of straightening bent nails with his grandfather as a child to to make the case that we are earthlings. Kathy Grunendike tells the story of a sermon about the cedars of Lebanon to reinforce the point that audience matters and we need to be careful as we are communicating about creation care. Deborah Reenstra talks about um, a story of learning the name of a dog near her house. And she taught her daughter the name of that dog. And as soon as they learned about the dog and they learned about the name of the dog, then they wanted to learn more about the dog and learn more about caring for it well. And she argues that we should be learning the names of the things in the world that we see around us, types of dunes, grasses, fish. Stephen Baum of Prediger talks about a May term trip that he led with students, and one particular student who, who really got the stories that he was trying to tell and things that he was trying to teach. And Stephen argues that earthkeeping is a better metaphor or better idea than stewardship. Mark Bieland talks about, tells a story about keeping a backpack packed and beneath his bed as a child because he wanted to escape the city, and go to the country. But he learned as an adult that even cities, also cities, need to be places where we practice creation care and that we're careful about how we treat them as well. So he argues that we should be moving from stewardship to place-making. Dietrich Bauma asked the question, who gets to be a steward? And he leads into that question by talking about tea plantation workers in India. And as Susan mentioned earlier, co-editor and friend David Warners talks about walking through a world of gifts and how that would lead us to a deeper appreciation of the non-human creation. I'd like to talk for a couple of minutes too about the process that we used to bring the authors together and write this book. As the author's uh, mugshots come up behind me here, (laughs) this is a great time for me to mention that the authors are really thoughtful and wise and they've been active in creation care activities for a few years in some cases and maybe a few more in other cases, but they have a wealth of experience and we tapped into that experience as we were writing this book and as we were developing our stories. Now you'll notice too that Susan said, and you can see behind me, that the authors come from a variety of disciplines but they all have in common a reformed outlook for life and for the creation. And so we have commonality in difference, and that led us to really interesting discussions and great interactions during two three-day workshops that we had in the summer of 2018. We also had, in addition to the authors, three observers that participated in those workshops. They provided active listening feedback and helped and interact with the authors and editors, in groups or individually. And they all helped together to shape a, a product that we, um, we have here today. Now some of these authors and observers are here today, and later on when we shift outside here for refreshments, um, they will be. Uh, there's going to be I think a table where we're selling a few books, and we got a bunch of pens the authors and observers will be circulating, and you can um, ask them for an autograph if you'd like to pick up a book. During these workshops, we had morning work every day. So these are planned times when David and I organized for the authors and observers and editors to get together and work in the greenhouse, do buckthorn removal, plant seedlings. It was a time to get together and socialize to be sure, but it was also an opportunity to discuss our chapter ideas, and discuss other things we were thinking about. And as we did this, we wanted to create a a comfortable environment where it was okay to be vulnerable with the others and build trust among all the authors. We also did what we called stories in the round, where each author prepared their story to be shared with other authors and editors. But the trick was, you had to tell your story without words. So on the sheet, on these, these sheets, we had to, the authors draw their story and then tell verbally their story to everybody else. And we indexed people around the room so they had to tell their story repeatedly. In that process, the authors found out what resonated, what worked, what didn't work. How did they want to tell the story that brought readers into the book? And it allowed them to refine their story. And tune it to be just right. We also asked the authors at one point to arrange yourselves in the order in which you think, you authors, think the, the chapters ought to be. <laughs> so this provided quite a bit of, you know, you'd think this would be like a two-minute exercise. Oh, no. <laughs> right? It provided quite a bit of frivolity and a lot of fun. But it also gave us a chance to take a really nice team photograph. We were intentional about seeking the connections among the chapters and the observers helped a lot with this. This diagram shows some of the links that we noticed as we were working through these workshops among the authors. This leads to a notation in the manuscript where we have in parentheses C author name comma chapter number. And this is an indication to the readers that what you are reading right here resonates with other places in the book. So the point here is that we tried to create a different kind of edited book. This is not a collection of standalone chapters. Rather, it's an organic whole, or we hope it's an organic whole, with lots of interconnections informed by personal and intellectual relationships among the authors. Now, David and I have been busy developing several resources for Beyond Stewardship, and I'd like to share some of those with you today. The first is at the back of the book, in an appendix, we have a series of discussion questions. So for each chapter, we have three to five questions that could be used in a small group conversation setting. So if if you read the book and you like it and you want to share it with other people, maybe it's an opportunity to do that in a small group setting at a church or a school function, whatever. We've got a podcast. This past summer, David and I interviewed each other... And six authors. So we split the task. And we also recorded an introductory episode. In these episodes we discuss the chapters and the authors' motivations for them. And we ask the authors to read their own work. I don't know about you, but if you if I listened to an author on TV or on, on, on the radio, I guess I would watch them on TV and listen to them on the radio. I always like to hear the author read their work in their own words so I can get a sense for what they were thinking when they wrote. And so we did that in this podcast. The podcast is hosted on Anchor, but you should be able to search for Beyond Stewardship and iTunes, Spotify, or Overcast. There will be weekly episodes, and I'm proud to say that the first episode should be available today. We've got a companion website that provides an illustrated version of each chapter that contains images that are selected by the authors and pull quotes that illustrate some themes in the chapter. This provides a visual way to experience the themes of each chapter from the author's point of view. And as Susan mentioned, we have another illustrated companion to go with this, and it sprung from a January 2019 talk that David gave to the artist collaborative January term class taught by Deborah Bursma, who I see in the back over there. Three students who are sitting right down here were inspired to write a children's book. Hannah Riffle, Gabby Isma, and Leonore. The book is called No More Room. It has lovely illustrations and a delightful rhyme, and you can go see it at the URL listed there. Furthermore, we have a uh, truncated version of it in in an appendix in Beyond Stewardship. Now all these resources can be found at beyondstewardship.com if you're interested in that. And then to end today, I'd like to have uh, provide several announcements. The first is, um, you know, to say that a huge project like this can't happen without the involvement and support of so many different people, and the first among them is the authors. Fun fact here, we had 100% retention of authors who arrived at the first workshop in June of 2018. And really all the credit for that goes to the authors who stuck with the process all the way along. We are so grateful for their commitment and their work on this process. The observers provided excellent feedback and input to the entire process all the way along. Janice Wharton was our intern. She helped us with logistics, worked on the companion website, and took the first cut at the discussion questions. Susan Felch, the executive editor of Calvin Press, super important in this whole project for providing guidance, support, and expertise that David and I lacked, so thank you, Susan. The Calvin Center for Christian Scholarship provided some workshop funding. The provost, who I saw back there some, oh, took off. appreciate that, uh, her support for the sustainability major project, which also provided some funding for this. The dean for faculty development, who is back there, provided course releases for David and myself to edit the book in January of 2019. And the biology department provided su- uh, some funding for a seminar series. So that's the end of our prepared remarks. I think Lauren is ready to uh, moderate a question-answer period, but I thank you for your interest and your attention. Thank you very much.
2: Take questions for our speakers, our authors.
1: Did you always have a fixed number of authors, like certain people in mind, or
2: were those like budget resources constraints?
1: The question is, did we have a fixed number of authors in mind, and were we limited by budget? You want to take a first shot at that?
0: (laughs) You know, over the years, Matt and I have had lots of conversations, and we've had conversations with other people on campus. Um, and so I guess we just sort of self-identified some folks that we thought would be interested in this project, and we just started asking people, do you, wanna, do you want in on this? And um, I had seen, for instance, Peter Obama as a former student. He's now doing his PhD. But I had seen him at a couple of conferences. And when he would ask me, hey, what are you working on? I said, well, I got this idea. He said, boy, keep me in the loop, because that sounds really good. So just lots of interactions like that. And then when we um, actually came down to it, we started making a list. And there were more than 12 people. But these were sort of the first 12 that came to our mind. And, and uh, so that's the number we decided to go with. I don't know if there was anything more formal about it than that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, too, that you asked about the finance side of it. Um, we went and found the money to support the 12 people that, we, um, that were already on board with the project. 12 is a great number, by the way. If you're ever uh, organizing a project like this, 12 is a good number because you can have pairs, you can have threes, you can have fours, you can have sixes. It works great. <coughs> Just a little logistical bonus material for today.
0: Yeah, Ari? Can you say something about the afterword for the book? Yeah.
1: Right, so the question is about the afterword and um, how did that come to be? (laughs) Okay, I get to go. Um, So the first thing to say is that, as David mentioned earlier, we are incredibly grateful to the authors of Earthkeeping and Earthkeeping in the 90s because it's their shoulders upon which we are all standing. The second thing to say is that we wanted this book, Beyond Stewardship, to start a new conversation, and it seemed only fitting to us to have the new conversation include voices that have been talking about this topic in the past. And so we invited the surviving members of the Earthkeeping team from the 80s and 90s to not give a review, but more give a response, to give the afterword, to say, Let's set this in a little bit of context. Let's understand where we were back in the 80s and 90s. And let's talk about how this new book fits in that context. And uh, we think they did a fantastic job of doing that. They're rightfully and acceptably defending the idea of stewardship, but that's okay. We want this book to open a conversation about where stewardship, where creation care should go in the future. And um, we we're really grateful that they agreed to to participate in our project in this way. And we were fantastic. We were just thrilled to give them the opportunity to have a platform to, to share their voice and speak into the discussion as well. Do you want to add anything more to that? That's Great. Okay.
2: <clears throat> One more. Yeah. One more question. Uh, you. Can you say something about your choice of the visual image for the cover? I imagine it's
0: mm-hmm. many- <laughs> <laughs>
1: Repeat, yeah, the, so, repeat the um, question first.
0: The, oh yeah, repeat the question. So, Claudia is wondering about the visual image for this book. We actually spent a lot of time searching for images. We wanted a, um, a picture that reflected the picture that's on the cover of the original Earthkeeping book, which is a bunch of cooling towers that are more the source of pollution and degradation, of creation and so beyond stewardship, uh, we'd like to think of it as a sober, hopeful book, uh, and um, the, the wind turbines are reflective of um, more hopeful ways that we can move forward into the future. So thanks for asking that. But we wanted to find them that they're you know, green below, blue above, and about the same number of wind turbines as cooling towers and <laughs> all that sort of thing. And we found one actually that we loved, but we would gonna have to pay quite a bit of money to use it. Susan the, the next idea.
1: <laughs> Beyond Stewardship is available from Calvin Press at Calvin.edu slash press and major online retailers.